Well, Seven Mile Road, I've got an update for you before we plunge into the scriptures this morning. Our elders met on Wednesday morning and we're discussing and praying our plans moving forward. And I wanted to let you know that we do have some some plans for the month of September and ways that we will begin to be able to regather uh, in person, which we are eager to do and looking forward to. The September 2nd prayer gathering will be the first time that we have a small group together in person. And so there will be more information coming about this. It will be an RSVP system that you can secure a spot and come together to worship and to pray and in conjunction with our 40 days of prayer and fasting. The subsequent Sundays, the 6th and the 13th, we will be uh, also doing RSVP in an ongoing way and we will have a, a group uh, gathering to worship while still providing online worship in this manner for those who are not comfortable gathering in that way. And we're brainstorming and planning towards September 20th, wanting to have some sort of celebration that is responsible and wise, most likely outdoor and a way for a larger group to gather and celebrate our fourth anniversary, celebrate baptisms together. These are our tentative plans. We'll continue to communicate lots with you to let you know what's coming, but we are eager to see at least half of your face um, someday soon. So please pray with us towards that end. Um, Pray for wisdom and clarity as we execute these plans. We're looking forward to being together soon. Well, in 2004, General Stanley McChrystal took over the strategic leadership of the army. And the army was embroiled in a battle against Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and were losing badly in some ways embarrassingly, because we had far more troops, greater resources, um, more money and weapons and everything, yet we're consistently losing battle after battle after battle. And so Stanley McChrystal came into power and he quickly realized that the old ways that the team used to communicate had had to die that a new day had come. And so he actually wrote a book about this experience, an intriguing read called Team of Teams, talking about the way they completely reordered how this team communicated and how he reorganized the troops in such a way that they began to secure meaningful victories, ultimately, in many ways, effectively stamping out the impact of Al-Qaeda in that part of the world. This is an interesting read, an interesting story about what is it that makes a team that gets things done. And in some ways, as we continue in Nehemiah's memoir, the story of his own journey and his own leadership, Nehemiah chapter 3 is is in many ways a, a snapshot, a picture of what sort of team gets things done. Who are the co conspirators with Nehemiah who have in Jerusalem, begun to rebuild the walls to provide safety and structure for the people of God to flourish in the city of God. This is a a story in chapter 3, a list of all of the names of the co-conspirators, the people who are getting things done quickly and boldly alongside of Nehemiah, their leader. And so we're going to explore chapter 3, learning what is it What kind of co-conspirators, what what co-conspirators that get things done, what are they like? What are the marks of that sort of team? And as we engage this chapter, I want us to think about it with two minds. 
The first mind is that we are going to be called as Seven Mile Road, a group of people, a group of co-conspirators with a mission that we want to see accomplished in this city to the glory of God to think, okay, do these marks line up with us? as we are called to be this sort of community that gets things done, that participates in what God is doing. And then secondly, I want you to consider as you are stewarding a calling, as we've been going going on this journey, your particular burden, maybe your house church who is responding to a particular calling and you're part of the city, I wanted you to consider what does the team look like that needs to gather? Maybe you at work or leading in a new area, what kind of team do you call together to be a kingdom person at work in the world participating in what God is doing. So as I read what we're going to discover together, the three marks of co-conspirators who get things done, three things that are true of them. Um, I'm just going to read the first 12 verses of 32 for us. We will get a feel for the chapter from these first 12, and then we'll kind of explore the chapter in different ways as we keep going. And and just before we read the first 12 verses of Nehemiah chapter 3, permit me to remind you, what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. It says the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. We come to this text, we can be confident in it. We can learn from it. We can pay attention to it. We can, we can be curious and dig in and plumb the depths of it because this word will not return void. It is God's word to his people and we want to receive it with active and glad hearts this morning. Let's pay attention to the scriptures. Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Please follow along with me. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it, and they set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and they set its doors, its bolts and its bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz repaired. And next to them, Meshalam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Banah repaired, and next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Verse 6, Joida, the son of Paseah, and Meshalam, the son of Besodea, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams, and they set its doors, and its bolts, and its bars, and next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon, and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. And next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramoth, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Harim, and Hashob, the son of Pahath Moab, Moab, repaired another section of the Tower of the Ovens. And next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. <laughs> now that's a 
treacherous part of territory to try to read aloud publicly, right? But, and it just continues all the way down through verse 32 as Nehemiah is boldly and celebratorily naming all of the co-conspirators that participated with him in this great work that he called them to. And as we pay attention to the words selected, the details included, what we will find is that every portion of scripture is beneficial, that it trains us and it teaches us if we come humbly and ready to learn. And so today we're going to learn what what are the marks of co-conspirators who get things done? And the first thing is this, they are in it together. Like capital I-N, capital I-T, they are in it together. We see this in this chapter that these folks are participating deeply in this call. Did you hear it even as I was reading? You heard this phrase, next to him or next to them, repeated. And if we were to read the whole of these 32 verses, we would see that phrase 14 times. Next to him, next to them, next to them, next to him. The idea of we are shoulder to shoulder to shoulder, and we are pushing together on the same thing before us. We are in this together, participating. And then did you hear in those later verses in in 6 through 9, did you hear um, the way that there's there's this variety of people that are participating? You saw in verse 8 that there were goldsmiths repairing, that there were perfumers repairing. Later on, we're going to read that there were merchants repairing. We read that the that the ruler's daughters were involved. And this, this reality that the perfumers and the merchants, let's be honest, they probably don't know a whole lot about construction. The perfumer is very comfortable with different aromas and aromatic spices and how to mix them properly. Probably has pretty tender hands. They probably look like a preacher's hands, honestly. Not a lot of calluses. But when the time comes, everyone is in it together. The perfumer is going, yeah, I can figure out how to build a wall and I'm going to be right next to him and right next to them because we're all in it together. That is the first mark of co-conspirators that get things done. They are not just about being spectacular individual contributors. They're about being great teammates, about saying, line me up, show me what I'm supposed to do. How can I be helpful When people start saying, what is it that needs to be done, I'm in. It's a game changer. In some ways, it's the reason that JFK's words at his 1961 inaugural address have lived on with such such, uh, prominence. When he asked the question, ask not what you can do, pardon me, ask not what the country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. I have a very bad JFK impersonation. But he asked that question and it resonated so deeply because he was flipping things upside down. Don't sit around and ask what the organization, what the country, what your church, what your house church, what, don't ask what they can do for you, but start asking, what can I do to contribute to the needs of the whole? The, the question that flips things upside down changes everything. And when we start to think about our involvement in communities, our involvement in a church, our involvement in a mission in that way, it really begins to change things. 
I've seen this beautifully displayed in our own community over the summer. I'm so proud of our house church staff team, the way that Michael and Peyton have been working together with Peter's kind of guidance and continued oversight, the way that they have worked hard this summer to raise up a whole new host of shepherds. And I'm so thankful for those shepherds. As I think about Arun and Sharon and Tanner and Zoe and Trey and Grace and Jordan and Katie and Marshall and Sarah and Francis and N.K. Chi and John and Vicky and Sarah and Andrew and Laura and Ed and Drew and Garrett and Karina and Blake and Alyssa and Tim and Robin and Jake, or pardon me, and Jack and Sarah and Kara Lee and Jesse and Joel and Trey and Allie and Christina and Michael and Travis and Jacqueline and Chan and Amanda and Sam and Neely and Dredrian and McCall and Tripp and Claire and Ryan. I am stunned. I just read 45 names. Those are all new house church shepherds that in an odd season where so much is happening and house churches are multiplying, I'm so blessed to watch a group of people say, where am I needed? Put me on the wall. I will go shoulder to shoulder. Line me up next to him and next to them because we are in it together. When we start to live in community like that, where people continue to step up to to share their gifts and to be a blessing, we start to be co-conspirators who get things done who press the mission forward. Thank you, Seven Mile Road, for responding the way that you have. Thank you, new shepherds stepping in. I'm also reminded, even within the context of house church, I so loved our our house church just multiplied, and we've kind of settled into three different communities. But our previous iteration was such a joy, and I was thinking about Jordan and Claire Bocal and how they are this young couple. They were preparing to be married And uh, they were a part of our community. And there were others in our community that were of totally different life stages and backgrounds. Um, One who had transportation difficulties and had such a different life and background. There was no reason that you would tie this crew together. But I saw consistently Jordan and Claire figuring out how to serve this individual, how to make sure that they were a part of the community. Saying, hey, do you need a ride to or from? And how can we include you? That when everybody starts asking, what can I do? to contribute to the health of the whole. Put me shoulder to shoulder on the wall. That's the sort of co-conspirators. That's the sort of crew that gets things done. Now, there's a note that has to be made here. Pride is an absolute deal breaker. It's like a discordant note. If someone's playing a beautiful piece of music on the piano and then all of a sudden just boom, they bang the keys out of alignment with the beauty of the music being played. That's what pride is like. I don't know if you heard it, but verse five almost strikes your ears in that way. If you look back at it with me in verse five, it says, and next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Tekoa was a little town south of Jerusalem. And what we know is that a group of people from that town came to serve, but their nobles would not stoop to serve. The Hebrew literally means they would not put their neck to the work. And commentators think that it includes that idea of stiff-necked pride. The idea being that the nobles of a nearby town all of a sudden see a young kind of hotshot leader that has come in from Persia and is leading this great movement. And you, you can almost feel the competition and the pride in the hearts of these nobles going, well, we're not going to be a part of that. Pride is an absolute deal breaker. It interrupts and breaks apart the sort of group of co-conspirators that really get things done. 
And the more people that bang those keys, the more grating it becomes on our ears. Seven Mile Road, I just want to say I'm so, so thankful for you in this season. I've heard from more pastors the pain and the difficulty of leading in a season like this. I was sitting with a friend just a couple of weeks ago, and he, was, he said to me, I've spent more nights sitting on the edge of my bed crying. He said, because, you know, people left the church because I was too slow addressing racial injustice after the incident involving George Floyd. He said, I waited eight days to make a statement, and so people left, and they left angry. And he said, and then I made a statement, and people left because I had politicized the church. He said, people left because we weren't meeting soon enough, because we were operating out of fear. And he said, and then we started to make a plan to reopen, and people left because I was being flippant and not actually taking care of our neighbors. He said, Jeremiah, what do I do? And it was one of those things where I was so sympathetic for his pain, because that's an incredible challenge. But I was having a hard time being empathetic, because the truth is, I haven't experienced that in loving and leading this community. I've gotten emails about each of those issues, but they always are written in a tone of grace and open-handedness as we continue to realize that we're all going to have disagreements through this season. The spirit of division is alive and well, but I'm so grateful that God has called me to shepherd this body because you continue to to operate in humility, open-handedness, extending grace to one another in a season that is, that is working to divide us. You see, pride is a deal breaker. And when building a team, don't shrug off pride. Ask, if you're starting to build a team, pay attention to the people that are starting to settle in. Ask, are they grateful? Do they show gratitude quickly and easily? Do they celebrate other people and their victories with ease? Or do you get a sense that they have competition, that they feel like someone else's victory is a threat to their own value? Are they collaborators or competitors? Do they treat everyone with dignity, especially like little children or waiters in a, in a restaurant or homeless people? Do they, do they look at everyone with respect and dignity that pay attention because where someone is entitled, ungrateful, a competitor that won't collaborate and let their gifts bless others, that that is someone that, that will be a discordant note on a team perpetually. Pride is a deal breaker. In Patrick Lencioni's book, The Ideal Team Player, he says the ideal team player is hungry and humble and smart. And he says when you find someone that's really hungry and really smart, but they're not humble, beware. He calls that person the politician always manipulating, always kind of twisting the sides, trying to make sure things benefit them. If we are going to build the sort of team, the sort of co-conspirators that get things done, we have to be in it together. And if we're going to be in it together, pride is a deal breaker. And so Seven Mile Road, as we receive this as a community, let us be the sort of people that continue to lean in and repent of our pride and operate in humility in the way that we love one another, the way that we navigate this season, the way that we push God's kingdom forward. And as you are stewarding your own calling or burden, pay attention to the people that you welcome into, into that kind of stewarding that burden with you and make sure that you don't just shrug at pride and let it continue to operate in the system because it will continue to bang those notes out that will grate on people's ears and rob your team of the impact that it could have. The first mark of co-conspirators who get things done is that they are in it together. The second 
is that they're unified by mission, not by sameness. What is it that calls co-conspirators together to be a singular team? The mission drives them. It unites them, not their sameness. Not just the fact that they have superficial connections or the same sort of background or makeup. And this is what we see in Nehemiah chapter 3. Let me show you. Uh, Look back with me at verse 1. And then we're going to look at 8 through 12 and the first part of 17. So verse 1 says this. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it. They set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. It starts on this note that here's the high priest with priests around him, and they're doing this work as a holy work, as a priestly work, consecrated to the Lord. And then you get down to verses 8 through 12. We, we heard these verses at the beginning. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, he's repairing. Verse 9, next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruled, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. So you've got a perfumer. Um, you've got a ruler. You've got goldsmiths. Verse 10, next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramoth, repaired opposite his house. Next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section. And next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Lastly, in verse 17a, let me read this. It says, after him, the Levites repaired as well. Later on, we would also see that servants were repairing. Do you hear it? All the different callings and makeups priests and perfumers and merchants and rulers and the rulers' families. They're all coming together. They have totally different callings, passions. The conversations as they're building the wall shoulder to shoulder might be a little bit stifled at first because they have totally different kind of makeups and they wouldn't have previously been in the same community or hanging out. Their connection is not just about their backgrounds and what they're interested in. Um, They have different callings and different personal intentions. Some of them are consecrating it to the Lord and some are working directly across from their house. You get the sense that for some of these folks, it's, well, yeah, I will repair the wall directly across from my house because I am, I'm committed to this neighborhood. They have, they're coming from different points. And interestingly, they come from different hometowns. Look with me at verse 5, 7, 13, 15, 16, 18, 23. Try to follow along. I'm just going to read them quickly to you. Verse 5a, next to them, the Tekoites. That means they're from Tekoa. Look at verse 7 with me. Next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jaden, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah. This is the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. So they live in a totally different section across the river. They don't live in Jerusalem. Their interests are not primarily connected to Jerusalem, but there they are working. Verse 13a, Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate, another area, Zenoah. Verse 15, Shalom the son of Kol Jose, ruler of the district of Mizpah. Verse 16, after him, Nehemiah, this is not the Nehemiah who wrote the book, but another one, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth Zur. I think you get the idea. We could run through all of these in verse 18, and verse 23. Different areas also mentioned, Keilah, and uh, in verse 23, we get the, um, 
Oh, forgive me, we'll, we'll leave it at that. That here you have all of these different areas coming together. So you've got people who have different callings and from different areas and different backgrounds, different hometowns, that these are not superficial connections. It's not just, hey, I got together with all my buddies to do something. Yet they're all driven by the mission. What we know is that in chapter two, when Nehemiah shared his burden, they said, let us rise up and build. They're committed to the mission, to the glory of God and the preservation of his city and his people in Jerusalem. It is the mission that drives them. Now hear this, listen, listen. Superficial sameness. Superficial sameness is sufficient for recreation. What I mean by that is you get together with the buds, you have all the same kind of background, the same likes, we cheer for the same teams, we like to do the same things and go to the same places and play the same sports. That's my pals. Superficial sameness is sufficient for recreation. It'll be good for some laughs, for some easy conversation, but is insufficient for shaking and rattling eternity, for moving a kingdom needle. Co-conspirators that really get things done, that move a kingdom needle, they're in it together and they're unified by the mission, not just their sameness. It's not just about getting together with my friends and having a good laugh. It's, hey, are you on this mission? I don't care how different you are. I don't care what your background is. Let's lock arms and push forward. That is the sort of community that gets things done. It's powerful. You got to keep the mission central and driving us. We see this in very specific ways, just even in company cultures in the world today. Ritz Carlton has one of the greatest cultures alive as far as a, a company and an institution. They win awards year after year after year. And if you were to work for Ritz Carlton, whether you work in a C suite or you make beds in one of their hotels, This first seven minutes when you show up to work is the exact same for you no matter what. You and the team you work with has a seven-minute standing meeting. And in this meeting, what they do, they're called roll call meetings. They rehearse their motto, ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. They rehearse their credo, their three crucial steps and their core values. And they tell stories of the ways that they have seen those things embodied the last time they were at work. They keep it alive. That may sound familiar because we, we learned from them even when we were getting started and saying, how do we keep the mission alive in everything we do? We rehearse it at the start of everything. We rehearse it at house church and Sunday gathering and we remind ourselves of our core values and we stay aligned by those things, not just by superficial sameness. On the other end of the spectrum, let me read to you the four core values of another company. Communication. We will will speak honestly and openly with our clients and and our, our community. Respect. We will treat everyone with respect. Integrity. With vulnerability and honesty, we will seek to be known. Excellence. We will do everything with excellence. You know whose four core values those are? Enron. Those are Enron's core values. They were written at one point, but they were not alive culturally. Enron has become synonymous with deception and greed, the the inverse of their core values. The reality is that the mission has to be alive in the hearts of everyone. It has to be what rallies them together if they're going to live out their calling in the world. And so we are all prone to forget. We must rehearse mission and and be aligned by mission if we're going to be the sort of co-conspirators that get things done. Well, lastly, you know, co-conspirators that get things done, they're in it together. 
They're unified by mission, not by sameness. And lastly, they are remembered, commemorated, praised by a good leader. I just want you to think about this. We, we've read just portions of this chapter. We're going to encourage you to read the whole thing in your house church. And I want you to consider the amount of space that Nehemiah is giving. 32 verses in this chapter. And in fact, in several chapters later on, he's also going to give long lists of names. This is a Holy Spirit-inspired memoir. A leader telling his own story under the inspiration of the Spirit. If you've ever wondered, how should you tell your own story? Well, let me, let me give you a little hint. It should have lists and lists of names of all the people who helped empower the mission that you were on. Nehemiah was an excellent leader who, under the inspiration of the Spirit, recalls names. He spills lots and lots of ink to name specific people. And you, and you get the idea. He's going, now remember, <clears throat> this, is, this isn't just any one of these guys. This is Uriah, not just any Uriah, the son of Hakaz. That's the one I'm talking about. He wants to make sure that individual people are lifted up and praised and remembered. It has been said that we should make every win a window. That every time we secure a win along the journey of fulfilling our calling, that we peer through it like a window and we find everyone that contributed to it and we praise them and remember them. That's what Nehemiah is doing in the course of this whole chapter. God saw fit to, to remember the name of every person that lifted a hand to be a part of this journey with Nehemiah, this great leader. And so we need to not shy away from encouragement. I, I, let me just say this. Can you name one benefit, one benefit from being withholding of your encouragement of other people? Where you notice things that people are doing that are great and you don't say it. Is there any benefit that comes from that? I can't think of one. Yet, if you show me a team where people are quick to praise each other's contribution, where there's a leader that remembers those who are serving and participating, that builds morale and buy-in and unity and joy. It becomes contagious. It builds trust. That team is more nimble and able to make quicker decisions because they trust one another and feel respected. That quick and honest and consistent encouragement changes the life of the family or the team or the mission that we're participating in. We need to be remembered and commemorated by a, by a good leader. I'll just ask you, who do you need to write a thank you note to this week? Who do you need to praise publicly in your next team meeting at work or, or maybe around the dinner table? You need to recognize someone that has been a real blessing. Raise up one of your kids and praise the way they've been participating encourage and encourage consistently in whatever community you're participating in and watch the way that it continues to encourage that group to be, to be the sort of co-conspirators who really get things done. Well, those are the marks. And as always, we come to this place of saying, well, how do we live this out? How do we, how do we have the, the gravitas and the ability to carry something like this out? And, and as always the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ plays in 10,000 places. We want to be a people saturated in the good news of the gospel because once again, it's the only thing that can empower this reality. Let me show you how. As we as individuals rehearse that we are sinners, that's what the Bible has told us to be true of us. We are out of alignment with God's word and his ways, rebelling against his good reign and rule in our life. 
That as we recognize by the power of the Spirit that we are sinful and in need, and we confess that sin and need, we are humbled before God. It doesn't matter if we are a ruler, a priest, a pastor, or if we uh, change sheets or, or, or anything along the way. He's saying there is no all of this stratification, whether you're a noble who won't stoop. No, no, no. You become humbled by the gospel, recognizing no matter what your, what your business card says about you, you're a sinner in need of grace, and Jesus has freely given it. It humbles us. It allows us to be a part of a team shoulder to shoulder with anybody on this mission. And incidentally, the gospel that ransoms and saves us from our own sin and brokenness then gives us a mission and clarity about what to be about, that we want others to know the love and the forgiveness of God that breeds freedom and fullness in life. And so that mission that saves us and humbles us begins to reorient us and give us mission. And then beautifully hear this. We have a perfect leader that will remember and commemorate and praise that someday when we stand before the throne of God, which every one of you will, we will all stand one day before God and all of his holiness and have to give an account. But the beautiful thing for those who are in Jesus is this. If you have pled his blood over your life, you are covered. Your sin has been delivered as far as the east is from the west. And when he looks at you, when the father looks at you, he doesn't see your sin and brokenness. He sees the coverage of the blood of Christ. And what he sees is all of the works that the grace of God have produced in you. And he praises you for those. And he actually gives to his own. He gives them crowns and and things that will be ammunition for their worship in heaven. He remembers and commemorates every good thing while overseeing and overlooking all of the sin that has been covered by the blood of Jesus. He's the perfect leader. Like in in the letters of Revelation saying, I know what you've been through. I remember We have a God who sees it all. None of it will be lost on him. And so as we let that wash our souls, we begin to realize, ah, I want to be in it. I want to be a co-conspirator in it, in this mission that aligns us of letting others know the freedom and the forgiveness that's available in Jesus. And as we do, we will live for the glory of the one that will see us and he will bless us one day saying, welcome home, a good and faithful servant. Welcome home. Brothers and sisters, let us be co-conspirators who get things done. Let's pray. So God, we love you and we thank you. I thank you that your word is living and active and sharp, that every bit of it is useful for teaching and correcting. We thank you that this list of names instructs us. And I pray that we would be the sort of community that is a list of names of people who are humbly committed to the mission. Would you make it true? We want to move the kingdom needle in the city. We want to be, a, it is a time to rebuild. Would you use us, God? And even as we pray and fast and long for it, would you pour out revival on this city and use our efforts to be a part of it? We look forward to what you're going to do, God. We thank you in advance. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.